Okay, this hour we're going to take out the trash. We'll see. Yeah. First of all, we have to all agree on what the trash is. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And we're going to read on through verse 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come once again into your presence. We invoke your name upon us, Lord Jesus, and we ask you to guide us and bless us in this time. We belong to you. We've been bought with a price. The blood of Christ, like the Passover lamb, is over us. And we know that we are not our own. And so when we say to you that we invite you to take our lives, to touch them, to do with them as you please, we're really giving you only what's already yours. You do own us. We belong to you. We're not our own. But we pray, Lord, because we pray this way because we don't want to resist you. We want to take full advantage of the time that we have together in your word. And to know that we have met with you and that you have touched our lives. And that we will be able to look back to this time and say, God did this in my life that day, that weekend. I came to understand this. I made this commitment. This thing began to change. And we pray that you will help us to grow. The examples that have been put before us in Scripture, of the Lord Jesus, of Paul and Timothy, and even Epaphroditus, even his example seems so far beyond where we are. Help us to follow on, to imitate, 
to grow, that our lives might also be examples of selfless service. Help us, Lord, that the mind of Christ would be in us. And help us to free our lives of anything that would drag us down or hold us back in our Christian growth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul, when he speaks to the Philippian believers, first of all, in the first three verses here, he warns them about false teachers. We're coming in these first verses to the opposite of everything he has said in chapter 2. In some way in which uh, the whole of chapter 3, we could say, is a contrast with chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we had the Lord's example, how he came down from heaven. We have Paul's example, Timothy's example. We have Epaphroditus' example. When you come to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is taken up, with these people, it says, beware, in, in verse 2. But he's not done with it. That's really, uh, as he goes on and gives his own example, that's really in the background of the whole chapter. And we won't come to that until, well, probably Monday. So if you want the rest of chapter 3, you have to come Monday night. Or, or get the CD, right? He says in verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's why I say because verses 18 and 19 make it very clear that he's still talking about the complete opposite of everything we had in chapter 2. We had four examples of selfless sacrifice, of humility, of obedience, of servanthood. And you come to chapter 3 and except for Paul here in the middle... As the counterweight to that, the rest of the chapter is really about people who are the opposite. So he's warning them. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is, is, to me is indeed not grievous, but for you it is safe. He calls upon them to rejoice. They had difficult circumstances. They had needs. But he wants to make sure above everything else that they're rejoicing. It's so important in the Christian life. Sometimes we have troubles that weigh us down. It should never take the joy out of our Christian life. You can't always rejoice in your circumstances, but chapter 4, verse 4 says rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1 says rejoice in the Lord. In what you have in the Lord, you can always rejoice. Not necessarily in the circumstances, but this is living above the circumstances. And he says, it's not uh, grievous for me to repeat this to you. To write the same thing, to repeat myself, to say the same thing. And he said, for you it's safe. They tell the story one time about a man who went to a certain congregation. um, And he preached and they invited him to come and uh, be the pastor. And so he went, and he accepted, and he went. And the first Sunday he preached there, when, as he, when he went to stay, he preached the same message he preached the last time when he was there visiting. And they didn't say anything. I thought, oh, well, he probably doesn't remember that. Next Sunday came around, he preached the same message again. Exact same message. 
they started looking at each other. They said, well, everybody makes a mistake now and then. Third Sunday came. He preached the same message. That was the fourth time. When he he left the pulpit, the brethren, responsible brethren there, the pulpit committee or whatever they called them, they were waiting for him. I don't know if they had a blue room or not. But they had. They said, Let, we need to go and talk. And they said, brother, do you realize you have preached the same message four Sundays in a row? And he said, yes, I do. He said, I'm doing it on purpose. And they said, because? He said, because I don't see anyone applying it. He said, so I preached it again the second week, and I looked around, I didn't see anyone applying it. So I preached it again the third week, I didn't see anyone applying it. So I preached it again this week. And he said, and if nobody applies it, I'll preach it again next week. We're not going on to the next lesson until somebody applies the lesson we're on now, he said. For me to say the same things to you, to write the same things to you, is not grievous. Not to Paul. He said, it doesn't bother me to say the same thing. And for you, it's safe. It's good for you. It's better for you. It's safe for you. To be reminded, why? Because we're forgetters. Because we don't pay attention. Because we forget the details. Over and over again in Psalm 106, we have this problem, don't we? We were reading about it. Um, I don't remember what day it was when we did that. That's gone out of my mind for sure. He says, um, Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies. Verse 7. And further down in verse 13, Psalm 106, he says, uh, Then they believed his words, they sang his praise, they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. Then in verse 20 it says, Thus they changed their glory to the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. So there's three right there. Three times in, a, in the first part of the 106th Psalm where he points out one of the problems that the children of Israel had. They're forgetters, forgetful. We need to be reminded. Why do you think the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper every week? Why do you think we need that reminder? This do in remembrance of me. Don't forget, the Lord is saying. Don't forget. It's like a touchstone. It's a place we constantly come back to. And we need it. And he says, for me to to preach these things to you, to remind you, to write the same thing to you, it's not grievous. Come over with me to Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 1. Verse 12, he says, wherefore... I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yes, I think it fitting, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that you will be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Paul didn't mind repeating things in person or in writing. Peter didn't mind repeating things in person or in writing. And you shouldn't mind. And don't anybody say, 
And the rest of this year, don't anybody say, well, now we can't preach on Philippians because we had the study with Carl. We already studied Philippians this year. What do you mean we already studied Philippians this year? That means we don't need to study Philippians until everybody here has forgotten everything we ever saw in Philippians. We need to go over and over it again until we until we find and apply all the truths that are in it. So it wouldn't hurt my feelings at all the week after I leave somebody to get up and preach on Philippians. Isn't that right, Brother Ron? <laughs> all right, now that's what I'm talking about. The same things. There's nothing new, novelties, fads. When people start telling you things that sound strange and new and different and they're not in here, they're not the same things, look out. Because in here, it's the same thing, the same message over and over again. Maybe from different people, maybe at a different time, maybe in a different way. But it's the same message over and over again. And this isn't the only time they've been warned here. He says it. He comes to the warning now in verse 2. Beware of dog. And I saw one sign one place that said, forget the dog, beware of honor. And it had a drawing of the guy holding a pistol on there. (laughs) Forget the dog, beware of honor. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision or the circumcision. Or, in your version, if you have, uh, if it says mutilation, that's even better because that's the word. Three parts this warning, but it's all talking about the same group of people, the Judaizers. The Judaizer was the person who tried to take Christianity and put it back into Judaism, subject Uh, the gospel to the law of Moses. Subject the faith in Christ to the, to the law. And you know we're not supposed to do that. You go back to the, you go to the book of Hebrews and you see how God annulled the old covenant because it was ineffective. It wasn't a bad covenant. The things that were in the law were not bad, but the material the law had to work with, namely us, was imperfect and couldn't keep it. This do and you will live. There's no way we could do that. So that was all annulled, and we have a new covenant where we're saved by faith through grace, where our relationship with God is on the basis of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers said you have to believe in Christ and be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's what they said. That's legalism. That's Judaizing Christianity taking Christianity and trying to put it back under Judaic, back under Mosaic law, back under the old covenant. You can't do that. That's right. The new wine and the old wineskins. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Why does he call them dogs? They're not very nice, is it? And in that part of the world, people don't keep dogs often for pets. And they certainly don't have them in the house. They're outside. They're considered unclean animals. You don't eat them and you don't have them hanging around. The only thing I was jealous of about the dogs 
among the Israeli Arabs where we lived in Nazareth for that uh, short period of time was that the dogs understood Arabic and I didn't. My neighbor would come out and say something to his dog in Arabic and the dog would walk off or sit down or whatever it was he told him to do. That was humiliating. (laughs) So that dog understands Arabic and I don't. (laughs) He told him to sit or to go away or whatever. And that dog did it. That's the only thing I found to be jealous about dogs in that part of the world. Dogs, unclean animals, outside, dangerous. In the Old Testament in Isaiah 56, the Lord called the men who were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel at that time. Isaiah 56, verses 10 and 11, he called them dumb dogs. There's your D.D. degree. Not doctor of divinity, but dumb dog. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Dumb doesn't mean. It means they don't bark. What does a dog do when a stranger comes up to the yard? He jumps up and growls. (laughs) Or it's a bigger dog. Well, Sometimes one bark is enough to let you know. These dogs didn't bark. They let anybody come in. They let anybody come in. Any teaching, any doctrine, anything. They didn't bark. Just lazy, laying in the sun, rolling over, scratching their fleas, and well, that was a that was a rough name. That was a tough name to give them. But that's what they were reduced to: dogs and dogs that don't bark. Second Peter two twenty two talks about the dogs that return to their own vomit. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow or the pig that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Not a pretty picture. Unclean animals who are on the outside. Who don't appreciate, don't understand and appreciate the things of God. He's talking about the false teachers. He's talking about the Judaizers. He's taking the gloves off. Because the shepherds get between the enemies of the sheep and the sheep. And they say, over my body, bud. you got to go through me to get to them. And they're warning them. Beware of evil workers. So the false teachers, the Judaizers, are unclean. They're not holy. They're dangerous. They're to be kept out. And he says they're evil workers. In verse 18, he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.17, the apostle says, We are not as many, as so many, peddling the word of God. Preaching it and teaching it and selling it for money. Peddling the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 11.13, Paul talks about false apostles and deceitful workers. In 2 Corinthians 11.26, he talks about being in danger among false brethren. In 1 Timothy 6.3-5, he says, From such withdraw yourself. Beware. Don't hang out with these. From such withdraw yourself. In 2 Timothy 3.1-9, he says, From such people turn away. 
This isn't the teaching uh, that we hear today of tolerance outside, like the dogs. Beware of the mutilation. Why does he call them that? Because this was their hobby horse, their pet theme. You you, You believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, but have you been circumcised? And are you keeping the law of Moses? So they took that. They were always saying, and they called them the mutilators. These are the traveling butchers. The first thing they do is get out the knife. And this is his use of irony and sarcasm. And he's hitting hard here because these men with this teaching were going around. They were following him around to the places he went and trying to destroy the work of the gospel. They were trying to take people that had been freed from sin and freed from the law and put them right back under it all again. And he calls them down in verse 18, the enemies of the cross of Christ. And in verse 19, he says, whose end is is destruction. The mutilation, he calls them here. The mutilators. Look out for them. And Leviticus 21, the only other place where they use that expression in the Bible, and this would be in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Bible. Leviticus 21, 5, that expression there is cuttings in the flesh. Cuttings in the flesh. It says, watch out. So part of the work of the shepherd and part of the work of the Bible teacher is to teach, to lay out and teach and explain the truths of God. But part of it is to warn people also. And a lot of people don't like to take warnings. You give them a heads up and they say, oh, well. You're just a little obsessed about this, aren't you? So don't take the warning. So what happens? So then they learn by experience. If there's a dog in there and you don't beware of dog, then you may get your britches torn. You may get your shorts ripped. You may get your leg bitten. You may end up going to the dock. Look out. Because you can't reason with them. They just bark and bite. Be careful, he says. This is a warning. For we are the circumcision, he says in verse 3. Don't be confused about this. They're always talking about it, he said, but they don't know anything about real circumcision. Spiritual circumcision. The true circumcision. We are the circumcision, says Paul. What is true circumcision? Colossians 2, verse 11. Let's take it from the Scriptures. We are the circumcision. He says in Colossians 2 verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. The circumcision made without hands. The putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what is it? Cut. To cut in a circle, to make an incision in a circle, a circumcision, to cut around. See, and they then they threw that foreskin away. That was a circumcision. And he's using that here to illustrate what the true circumcision is made without hands. When the that the body of sin, the flesh, he doesn't mean your <laughs> physical body, he means that, that whole life lived in the desires of the flesh. That thing is cut off and thrown away like a bloody old piece of skin. 
You don't live for that anymore. You don't live for sin and for the desires of the flesh anymore. Or cut around it. And but it's done without hands. It happens when we're saved. When we repent and trust in Christ and we leave the old life behind. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. The circumcision made without hands. Gone. We are the circumcision, he says. Why? Because God has delivered us from our sin. God has taken away that old sinful life that we were living. He's forgiven us. He's given us a new life. It's a circumcision made without hands. And he says, and now what do we do? We worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. There's the three things by which you can identify those who have truly been spiritually circumcised from sin and from the old life. They do what? Worship God in the flesh. Excuse me. Worship God in the spirit. We have access to the Lord by one spirit. The Father seeks such to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not by sacraments and not by rituals and not by ceremonies. In spirit, spiritual worship. We have access to the Father by one spirit. We don't need a church or rites or ceremonies to give us access to God. We have access to God by the Spirit of God who lives in us and who leads us into fellowship with God and makes our worship presentable to God. We worship God in the Spirit. We don't need images. We don't need religious art. We don't need ceremonies and figures and all of these things and bells and sprinklings and incense and all of these things. We don't need that. We don't worship God that way. We worship God in the Spirit. Not through a priest, not through a sacrament, not through a church, not through a ceremony, not through a saint. And he says, and we rejoice in Christ Jesus. A person who's been saved from their sin has nothing to rejoice in about himself. All his rejoicing is in Christ. The sooner you discover what the truth of what Paul said, the happier you'll be as a Christian. (laughs) He said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And the sooner you learn that there's nothing good in you, the sooner you will stop being disappointed or depressed when you look in there trying to find it and don't find it. Because it ain't in there. Your rejoicing is in him. What's, what's good about any of us? The only thing noteworthy about any of us is that we know Jesus. <laughs> we belong to the Lord Jesus. That's the only thing that's famous or noteworthy about any of us. We're just a bunch of garden variety sinners saved by the grace of God. That's all. Rejoice in Christ, not in self. Christians are not people who boast. They don't have self-confidence. They're not confident in their works. They're not confident in their religious activity. They're confident and rejoicing in Christ. And he says that here, and have no confidence in the flesh. And that's exactly where the confidence of the Judaizers was. In the fact that they had been circumcised and that they were trying to keep the law of Moses. Their confidence was in what they had done and in what they were trying to do. And their confidence in their faith was not in Christ. It was all in works. And I'm going to tell you something. Judaism, in that sense, the Judaizers version of it, is alive today. 
the Judaizers, those who are mixing the truth, the simple truth of the gospel with all these works and things you have to do. In order to get to heaven, no one knows for sure he's going to go there, but we have to go through life and continue to confess and forsake all known sin in order that we might reach heaven at the end. I'm debating whether I'm going to tell you the name of the group that teaches that. The Mennonites. People for whom I have a lot of respect. Certain values that they maintain. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. If I'm going to believe that, I'll go be a Catholic. A Roman Catholic. Because the Roman Catholic believes you never have complete forgiveness for sin. Nobody can ever say it's presumption to say you're going to heaven. Because the church teaches that you can only know for sure that you're going to heaven once you die and you're judged by the Lord. You go to the judgment and then we'll all find out. And so no one can presume to say they're going to heaven. So when your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven from here back, never from here forward, see. So in order for you, you have to keep going to confession. In order for you to make it to heaven, you keep having to confess and forsake all known sin all during your life you have to keep going to confession and the priest has to keep saying to you with a little sign of the cross I absolve you for your sin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen see they're doing this over and over again all their life and they get to the end of their life these little old ladies all wrinkled up and curved over with age and dressed in their little black dress mourning for everybody who died before them and their family and you say, old woman, and that's not a disrespectful term in Spanish, or you say they call them grandmother, even though they're not related to you, abuela. Isn't that right, Eduardo? Abuela. ¿Qué le pasará cuando muera? What will happen to you when you die? Ay, hijo, nadie sabe. Oh, son, no one knows. When all our life, went to all the masses, went to all the confession, put candles up and prayed for all the people who died before her and her family, gave from that little stinky pension that she had that wasn't enough to, to meet her own needs, and she took that money and gave it and bought stuff and paid for masses and bought candles and put in the offering in that little box under the big figure of Jesus crucified on the cross that has that little sign in front of it that says, To Get Souls Out of Purgatory. And she thought, well, just in case that might help, I'll put some money in there too. And she didn't have enough money to buy herself a new pair of shoes. And she did this all her life. And at the end of her life, you ask her what's going to happen to her when she dies. And she says, I don't know. That's Roman Catholicism. So if I want to believe what the Mennonites or what other people teach, also all people, even in Christianity, all these different church groups that teach that people can lose their salvation, they're teaching the same thing. They're teaching that it's on the basis of your works, that Jesus Christ gives you a push in the right direction, but you have to persevere and you have to do the works and you have to keep confessing your sins. Because in the end, even though Jesus died on the cross for you, He can't save you if you don't do right. That's what they're teaching. 
And you can call them Adventists, or you can call them Church of Christ, or you can call them the Methodists, or you can call them the Free Will Baptists. I don't care what you call them. The doctrine is all the same. Salvation by works. Not by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Judaizers. It's the circumcision. It's alive and well. And that's why we can't have fellowship with people who are not preaching the same gospel. It's it's not the same doctrine. It's not the same truth. They use words that sound similar and sometimes the same expressions. But the essence of it is not the same. Underneath the, the apparent similarities are things that are diametrically opposed to the simple truth of the gospel. And if you didn't know that, you need to wake up. Your love needs to grow in all knowledge and discernment like we saw in chapter 1. Because that's the way it is. It's a problem, not just for the Philippians. We are the circumcision. We don't have any confidence in the flesh. We, we worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And now Paul moves to his example. And what is his example? Verses 4 to 14. What is his example? So that the circum, those of the circumcision boast in their knowledge. They boast about the rabbi that they trained under. Uh, they were in the school of Gamaliel or they're doctors of the law. They use a lot their titles. They use a lot their lineage. They talk about what family they were born in and what tribe they were born in and what their theological education was. And people still do this kind of stuff today and they hang it on the wall where everybody can see all of their degrees and titles. How, what a learned doctor of theology they are. Paul said, well, I also might have confidence in the flesh. If any other thinks he has whereof, he might trust in the flesh. I'm more. Do you want to trust in the flesh and be confident in the flesh? Nobody is in a better position to do that than me, says Paul. I could do it. But he's an example of rejoicing in Christ and of no self-confidence. Although he had more advantages than all of the false teachers put together. And he's going to give you here his resume. Verses 4 to 6, his resume. Actually, verses 5 and 6, we could say. His inventory of advantages. He had the pride of lineage, of genealogy. Circumcised the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Or like the Spanish say when they talk about being a, a, of the pure Spanish race, they say, Soy español de pura cepa. De pura cepa. I'm, I'm from the pure vine of Spanish, they say. Ah, de pura cepa, hombre. That's the way they talk with all their pride. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, I'm, I'm the pure Hebrew. I was circumcised. The law said on what, not only to be circumcised, but on what day it said to be circumcised. He said, I was circumcised on that day, the eighth day. 
I come from the stock of Israel. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Pride of genealogy. Pride of lineage. And we have that kind of stuff in the world today. And it might not be in Paul's case. Or it might not be like uh, Paul here. Or like the Judaizers. But we still have people all over the world who are proud of their race. And proud of their lineage. And proud of who their father was. And who their grandfather. And what lineage they descend from. And they consider that to be a great advantage. And they consider it to make them better than other people. And that's unfortunate. Pride of lineage and genealogy. Second, pride of orthodoxy. As touching the law, a Pharisee. First of all, I'm proud to be a Jew, he could say. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to brag, but really there are a few Jews better than me, he would have said. And then he said, and orthodoxy. Well, you know, in the Jews there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the liberals. And the Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees, oh, they didn't take things literally. And they didn't believe in angels and spirits and, that's, and the resurrection and that sort of thing. And, and the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were strict. And he says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. He was of the old school. Like that Pharisee who stood there in the temple in Luke 18 and said, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men. That's the way the Pharisees thought. They were God's gift to the Jewish nation. They were the example. They were to be admired and feared even. Pride of activity. Verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, no one could doubt his zeal, could they? And if we could say anything good about the zeal of Paul, this is what we would say when he was Saul of Tarsus. We would say at least his zeal was visible. And people are always saying, ah, but zeal, you know, zeal without knowledge. That's the only thing some people know about zeal, zeal without knowledge. And that's right. They're right about it. Zeal without knowledge is worth nothing. But that's not saying that zeal in itself is bad. When the Lord Jesus cleansed the temple, what was that verse the disciples remembered when he did that? The zeal of your house has eaten me up, has consumed me. Has consumed me. He did it because of his flaming love and devotion to the Father and for his house. He couldn't bear to see those things in there. The zeal of your house has consumed me, he said. Or they remembered that verse when he did that. So zeal in itself is not bad. And I'll tell you, we could use a little more of it. We're too laid back. We're the mellowest, most unenthusiastic generation of Christians, I think, that has ever lived. The only thing we get excited about is when they hit a home run or score a touchdown or make a shot at the buzzer. In the basketball game, or, or if we open up the page where the stock market report is and we see ours went up, or the one we just sold went down, and we say, Phew. we get excited about that kind of stuff. Paul had zeal, and it was visible. He persecuted the church. He believed he was doing the right thing. 
He went to Damascus. It says in there what he did. He took them prisoner. He, he, he cast his vote against them. He talks about how he persecuted the church. And the Holy Spirit talks about how he persecuted the church. Over in the book of Acts, it talks about him, what he was doing. He was making waste, laying waste the church, persecuting it. He was a serious enemy. So everyone knew about the zeal of Paul. Oh, even the demons knew about Paul after he was saved. When those men went and tried to cast the demons out in Ephesus, and they said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, that talk about a weak introduction. And the demon said, do what? <laughs> Jesus we know. And Paul, the demon said, they knew who he was. Leonard Ravenhill said in a chapter of a book that he wrote about that, that Paul was known in hell. He, and he asked the question, reader, he said, are you known in hell? Those demons said, Jesus we know. And Paul, but who are you? They said. And that man that was possessed jumped on him. There were seven of them and one against seven. And he turned them every which way but loose. And they ran out wounded and naked. He ripped their clothes off of them, I mean. He tore them up. So Paul's zeal was known. It was known before he got saved, and it was known after he got saved. He had good zeal for the Lord. He was consumed with love for the Lord. He served him enthusiastically, and with all his heart, and with all his strength, with all his soul, he served the Lord. But here he's talking about before he was saved, and he said concerning his zeal, persecuting the church. That was his pride. He was doing what he thought was right. His activity, pride of activity. And then we have his pride of morality. Concerning the righteousness, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That means he did everything the law required. But that would include that, you know, if he committed a sin, he would take the sacrifice for it. He's not saying he was perfect, he never sinned. He was saying that he fulfilled everything that the law required him to. He always kept, he tithed everything he was supposed to. He's presented the sacrifices he was supposed to. He never touched an unclean thing. All these things. He said, this is the way I lived. Pride of morality. Ah, but Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I saw a fellow illustrate that one time. He, he took a rag that he used. He had just cleaned the, the engine on his car. And this rag was full of grease and oil and he held it up and he said this is a filthy rag this is what your righteousness is that was probably a better thing to use in the states because over here people are real sensitive they don't want to know what the filthy rag really was back in those days when Isaiah was written the women when they had their menstrual period didn't have the things that they have today and so they used rags and you know that the, the woman during her menstrual period was considered to be unclean she was ceremonially unclean and anything she touched or wherever she sat was unclean and the uh, the, the jews to touch anything that had blood in it or to, to that made them automatically unclean and so just imagine those rags he says this is what all your righteousnesses are like 
That's what that word really means. So there's a lot of people that have pride of lineage, of orthodoxy, of activity. They might be have a, a, some position in the church. They might be morally better than other people in their own consideration. But all that is just nasty to the Lord. His birth in religion, his years, his studies, his works, his social position, everything that he could be proud of. He says, I have more than them. Humanly speaking, he would have called himself a good person, but it was worthless. Worth nothing. And I ask myself and I ask you, do you have self-confidence? Pride in your achievements? Things that you like to boast about? Put on show before others? Or what you've done or what you haven't done? Would you consider yourself a good catch for God? Time to wake up. Paul says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me? Because he certainly considered them to be gain. And we just had his resume. And now he's going to give us his renunciation. Verses 7 to 11. His renunciation. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. This is the balance sheet that you have. The profit and loss. The the apostles' spreadsheet. On one side, everything that you consider to be of benefit and achievement in your life. And on the other side, Christ. You willing to count it all trash? All rubbish? Renounce it all? And just have Christ. The only advantage you have is Christ. The only thing you can boast about is Christ. Oh, but we live in a competitive world, Carl. You don't understand. Yes, I do. They lived in a competitive world back then. (laughs) And what do we care? What should we care? This is the balance sheet. On one side, everything that we've previously seen. All his pride, all his position, all his achievements. And on the other side, Christ. And this is a contrast. He says, but. He starts the verse with but. That's a word of contrast. I had all these advantages, but what was gained to me? And it was gained to him in every way because he ran with the right crowd. It was financial gain to him. They took care of him because he served them. He did what they wanted him to do. Material, physical, social, religious. He had it. He had a corner. Everything that he had. Intellectual, moral. He gave it all up. And nothing more than rubbish compared to Christ. I have counted loss. That's past tense. I did it. There was a time in his life where he put a big red X over all of that. I have counted loss. And some of you are still struggling to get to the point where you put the X down for the first time. I'm afraid. I have counted loss. I have counted. That's the opposite of esteem that we had back in chapter 2 and verse 3. Esteem others better than themselves. And here he says, count it loss and consider it rubbish. So he's gone to the other extreme, hasn't he? 
This is what all these things that people love and look up to and appreciate and want and covet. Paul says, nothing. I'd rather have Christ. Oh, but you're going to lose it. Well, I'll lose. And so what? I'm willing to count it loss, he says. And the word he uses for loss is the, is the Greek word zemia. It's only used here and one other time in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 10, when they talk about that ship and the shipwreck that was lost and all the cargo on it was lost. Everything was lost in that storm at sea. The cargo, everything on board. That reminds me of religion and society and all the things that men work to achieve. All the, the altars and all the temples and all the images and all the tunics. And all the philosophical systems and all the pride that goes into that and pride of degree and pride of position and all of these things, the whole thing, the ship and all its cargo went down. It was all lost. That's the only other time that word is used in the New Testament. He says, I did that. And God would like you to be able to say that. I did that. And now in verse 8 he says, and you know what? I haven't changed my mind over the years. I wasn't being extreme. I haven't changed my mind. Yes, he says, indeed, I also count, present tense, all things lost. I'm still doing it, he says, a present tense affirmation. It's an emphasis, he says. I did. I made that decision, but I still think that way years down the road. He did it when he got saved, and he's still doing it years later. He hasn't rethought it. He hasn't uh, come back and said, well, maybe I was a little overzealous. What did he get in exchange for losing all of those things, for saying goodbye to them? He got Christ. He got Christ. I'm going to read to you a little bit of an old tract written by A.W. Tozer that I keep in the back of my Bible. It's glued in, so you can't have it. Sorry. All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come into the modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It is like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences, fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life. And from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting, and a new kind of preaching. The new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same and its emphasis not as before. The old cross would have no truck with the world. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal. And if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference. It's, uh, his life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure, only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing body songs and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment. Only the fun is on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. The New Cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelistic approach. 
The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life before a new life can be received. He preaches not contrasts, but similarities. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers. Only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the, pub- to the public. The philosophy back of this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was not going out to have his life redirected. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard. And when it had finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under death sentence. There is no commutation and no escape. God cannot approve of any of the fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear or beautiful to the eyes of men. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and by then raising him again to newness of life. That evangelism which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, or the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. To any who may object to this or count it a merely narrow and private view of the truth, let me say God has set his hallmark of approval upon this message from Paul's day to the present. Whether stated in these exact words or not, this has been the content of all preaching that has brought life and power to the world through the centuries. The mystics, the reformers, the revivalists have put their emphasis here, and the signs and wonders and mighty operations of the Holy Ghost gave witness to God's approval. Dare we, heirs of such a legacy of power, tamper with the truth? Dare we, with our stubby pencils, erase the lines of the blueprint or alter the pattern shown us on the mount? May God forbid. Let us preach the old cross, and then we will know the old power. Paul knew the old cross. It brought an end to Saul of Tarsus. 
and to everything that he had, to all the life he had composed, to all the career that he had built, to every advantage that he had. He didn't drag that stuff into Christianity, into following Christ, and try to baptize it and sprinkle it and Christianize it and use it for some advantage in Christianity. He said goodbye to it. And he had more than you do, brother. And he had more than I do. And why is it that like a bunch of blind beggars, we hang on with our greasy, trembly fingers to these nasty things that the, the least of the saints of the old days would have despised and thrown away as trash? I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ That's what we need to know. Christ. People brag sometimes about their knowledge of theology, their knowledge of history, their knowledge of Greek, their knowledge of whatever it might be. But it's a lot better. Give me a man. Give me a woman. Give me a person who knows Christ. Who can talk about him. Who can sustain a conversation about Christ. Paul paid the price. For fellowship with Christ. To know Him. That I may know Him. Not to know about Him. But to know Him as one person who spends time with another knows that person. I want to know Him, he said. And I'm willing to give up everything to know Him. I'm willing to count it, as he says in verse 8, all rubbish. Rubbish. Oh, it's worse than that. That's the word scubalon. It means dung or excrement. That's what he counted it. Trash, we say sometimes. And trash, in that sense of the translation of this word, includes all those other nasty things with it. So, he says, I count all things with loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things in the past and do now is the understood there. Now, I do count them, but dung, or rubbish, or excrement, that I may win Christ. He wants more of Christ. He wants to know Him even better. He wouldn't go back to that. He doesn't want any of that. So what do we do with the trash? What do you do with the trash? You take it out. You take it out to the dumpster. You throw it out. This is trash. I'm not keeping this in the house. You take it out and you dump it. And you don't go out there crying all the way. You know why? Because nobody wants to keep a bunch of excrement in their house. And you know why we hang on to things? And why it's so hard for us to give them up? Because we don't think about them like Paul did. We want to hang on a little bit to some of these things that we consider might be some advantage or that we worked so hard or we gave our lives to achieve. And, and, as, and you hear them in whining voice say, oh, there's nothing wrong with this, is there? And there's nothing wrong with this, is there? And they're whining and trying to hang on. I said, well, you hang on to it if you want to. Paul took out the trash. And I want to say, that there's a price to pay for knowing Christ better. You can't have the world in Christ. 
You can't have things that are earthly, fleshly achievements in which you find pride and feel some sense of accomplishment and be bragging and boasting in that and all these things. You can't have that and a better knowledge of Christ. You can't be climbing the social ladder and at the same time be coming to know Christ better. That I may gain Christ, he says. Never satisfied. He wanted more fellowship. And be found in him, verse 9. Not with my own righteousness, he says. Not having my own righteousness, which is in the law. See, that was the mistake. The Judaizers and the Jewish people in that time and those who don't recognize the Messiah to this very day, they try to achieve righteousness by keeping what the law says. And they ignore the righteousness of God. God has righteousness to give to people. In Romans 4 we see it. The righteousness of God which is by faith without works. And this is what he talks about here. Not having my own righteousness which is of the law. But that which is through faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. I can't have all of those things in Christ. And Christianity is not um, adding Christ to your curriculum, to your resume. Christianity is when you say, the old me and everything I had and lived for and was proud of, trash. I just want to be a follower of Jesus. Love him and follow him and learn of him and be like him and serve him. And I want everything I do. And I'm jealous of my time and jealous of my energies. I'm worried that other things might take them away. And they might be things that people consider legitimate. But I I don't want to get involved in those things. I want my time to serve for the Lord. I want it to be for Him. Be found in Him. That's enough for me, Paul said. So there's a price to pay. Take out the trash. Dump it. One young man, I was telling somebody about this earlier. He said to a, he was listening to an older brother preaching the word. And he came up to him and he, after the meeting and he said, I, I would love to have, I'd give anything to have the knowledge of the Bible that you have. Tell me how to do it. I'd give the world to, to know the scriptures like you do. He said, would you now? That's exactly what I gave the world I gave it up and while other people were exercising their Christian liberty because there's no verse that says you can't do this and there's no verse that says you can't do that while they were exercising their Christian liberty and having their fun and enjoyment he said I studied the Bible I prayed I witnessed I memorized he said, I gave up so many things to know Christ better. I gave, the, gave up the world. And he said, and I'm not sorry. He said, but the trouble is so many people, when they see the price tag, they back away. That's too much. Too much to give up the world for Christ? And what have you lost when you lose the world? What have you lost when you lost the trash? We need to have our thinking transformed. We need to have a new set of values. 
And Paul's going to say later on, Brethren, verse 17, be followers of me. Uh Uh-huh. Paul took out the trash and he says, now you go take the trash out. Follow me. Don't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and the apostles if you can't take the trash out. We're not going to have this halfway Christianity, a foot in the world and a foot in Christianity. Paul says, be followers of me. In the book of Ecclesiastes even, it says, whatever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. Just whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly. Be 110% Christian. Or go live 110% in the world. And do everything they have to offer. But don't give me the half and half. Like we used to say in the old days when $2 would give you some gas to run on. We used to say, go down to the gas station and put in $2 worth. Or a doll's worth, a regular. Yeah, yeah. But back in those days, my uncle, I still remember when I first learned to drive, I thought I was hot stuff because he gave me the keys to his car. I was 16. He said, uh, he gave me a $5 bill. He said, go down to the gas station and uh, go take my car and go fill it up. Ah, man. I took my uncle's car and I drove the long way to the gas station. (laughs) So everybody could see me driving that car. And five bucks filled it up, bud. So this old preacher back then, he said, you know what you people are? He said, you are these people who want a dollar's worth of Christianity. He said, you don't want your tank full. You're not the filler up kind. You're the put in enough to get me a little bit down the road kind, he said. And we all started squirming. You know? Fill her up, Lord. Be found in him, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. We believe Paul wanted to serve the Lord until he died. We believe he wanted to know what it meant to be resurrected. To die serving the Lord who died for him. To, To die in his service. To have the fellowship of his sufferings. To be made conformable to his death. To die. To please God, to be obedient unto death, and even the death of a cross if it was necessary. He wanted to follow his Savior even to death. And to know the power of his resurrection, he said. And I tell you, a man who can look the resurrection in the eye isn't afraid to look death in the eye. If I, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's almost like he's saying, I kind of feel bad going to heaven without dying. Because Jesus died for me. I'm willing to give my life for him to be faithful to him. He says, I haven't already attained. And he gives his purpose and lifestyle here in verses 12 to 14. He says, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not there and I'm not perfect, but I'm following. I'm following. I'm moving. I'm not parked. I'm not stagnant. I'm not stationary. I'm following after. And you can't park either. You can't be stationary. You can't be a frozen Christian. You can't be a cushioned Christian. you got to be moving and following like Paul was. If that I may apprehend that for which I was apprehended, that I might take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. He took hold of me for a purpose. He had a purpose in mind when He took me and saved me. He says, and I want to live out that purpose. And I want to tell you something, brother. When God saved you, He had a purpose in mind for your life. And it wasn't to put a rubber stamp on everything that you already had planned before you were saved. 
Uh, it doesn't mean automatically it's going to change everything you, your job and everything. But I'll tell you this, you should be open to the fact that you made a lot of decisions about your career and lifestyle and values before you got saved. And when you came to Christ, you should have handed all that to the Lord and said, Lord, I don't need you to put a rubber stamp on this. I need you to tear me out some pages here and put in what the real plan is. See? The new coach has got a new playbook. That's what I'm talking about. That I may apprehend, that I may take hold of that for which he took hold of me. He said, I, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. This one thing I do, not many things, one thing I do. He wasn't trying to be a well-rounded socio-cultural Christian. This one thing I do, he said. Look out for those men who, who zero in on one thing. This one thing I do. Forgetting the things that are behind. What things? Verses 5 and 6. All those things he counted lost. All those things he counted trash. All those things he left behind. He said, forget that. I'm not whining and crying. And I'm not even going around telling people, oh, but do you know what I was before I was saved? So he could brag a little bit on that. He's not even doing that. He said, all that stuff is gone. You remember what was in the trash you threw out yesterday? You keep a list of the trash you threw out? <laughs> He's not keeping a list of the trash. I forget the things that are behind. Reaching forth to the things which are before, I press toward the mark. This is the language of a runner who's leaning forward. And he's, try, he's going to the finish line, the mark, the mark. And when you reach the mark, the line, there's the prize. And what is it? What's the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, is set down at the throne of God, the Lord Jesus. He's the mark, the finish line, and he's the prize. Running right into his arms. And it's a blessing in this life. The high calling that we have is to live like Christ. To let this mind be in us. To behave, to serve, and to live like him. To be known as people who belong to him. That's our only claim to fame. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in a race. And we're supposed to have our eyes on the mark. Running to the finish line. Pressed to the goal. Reaching out. Straining. Leaning forward to it. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you doing it? Are you moving toward Christ? Leaning forward. Straining to reach the mark. Not looking back over your shoulder. You know how fatal that is for a runner. Look back in a race. Even look sideways. Are you reading? Are you studying? Are you praying? Are you worshiping? Are you serving Christ sacrificially? Are you being a witness? 
Are you pressing forward toward the mark? And there's another sense in which we can take great encouragement from this passage because sometimes when we look back, we see not only things that we shouldn't uh, boast about anymore that we gave up, but we look back and we see mistakes we made and sins that we committed. And David says one time to the Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. And in the New Testament, the apostle says, well, you just forget them too. What's behind you? is forgiven and under the blood of Christ. Forget it and stop digging up the past and trying to relive it. You can't do anything about the past except learn from it, maybe. You have to go on. And God has mercy and grace to lead you on if you set your eyes on the mark and go. May God help us all to be men who do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time that we've had together. I thank you for every brother here, Lord. We love one another, but we know that you love us so much more. And when we get to heaven one day, we're going to see how great that love is and understand it anew. Just like that man who wrote that chorus that says, By and by, when I look on his face, beautiful face, thorn-crowned face, thorn-shadowed face. By and by when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. More, so much more, more of my life than I ever gave before. Well, help us by faith to look on that face now and to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that you will take the truths that we have studied from this book and apply them to each of our lives in a special way that will mark us from now on. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.